morning, everyone. I'm Pastor Trevor Killip. Um, I am glad to be back from my short, well, I wasn't that short, it was kind of a long vacation, um, but I'm glad to be back uh, with you all once again. Uh, thank you for allowing my family and I to take some time off and to go back to Maine to spend some time with my family and my brothers and parents and enjoy the wonderful sights of God's country out there in vacation land of Maine. So, and if you've never been there, I would encourage you to take some time and go there. You will be blessed by it. It is absolutely uh, gorgeous there. And a lot of what we have here is quite a bit similar to what is in Maine. It's part of the reason why I love living here in this area of Cooley Region in Wisconsin. So today we're going to be in uh, Matthew. We continue our journey through Matthew in chapter 20. So if you want to go ahead and open up uh, your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20, uh, we're going to be in verses 29 through 34. Uh, If you need a Bible, we have Bibles throughout uh, the seats um, in front of you. Um, But before we begin, I want to share um, some quotes. Uh, Dr. Russell Moore wrote an article back in 2015 titled, How Caring for the Elderly points us to the gospel. And in this article, it's, it's written in regards to his personal experience in putting his mom into a nursing home and where we can find the gospel in that experience. And so I just want to share just a few quotes uh, from him on this. He says, Human dignity does not consist in how useful one seems, but in the image of God. I tend to judge my own worth by how needed I am by what sermon I've preached, by what book I've written, by what legislation I've pushed forward, by how good a father I've been to my sons that day. I want to be needed and not needy, and that's my problem. Caring for the elderly ought to remind us that we are not defined by our activity. Unfortunately, though, that's how society often defines us, isn't it? Society has a way of pushing certain kinds of people to the margins, to the fringes. And this may vary from society to society, but between all societies, there's always that group of marginalized people who are viewed as expendable because they have nothing to offer in the eyes of society. They cannot contribute. They cannot pay taxes. They have no one to provide for them. They can't provide for anyone. They, they need constant care from somebody else for themselves. Thus, they are a burden. They are a weight on society. And since they cannot contribute, they are expendable. And that way, society pushes them to the side. Think of the elderly who are no longer able to work. Or the unborn in the womb who cannot speak from themselves. The person born with autism. Or any condition that may cause them to be totally or partially dependent on somebody else. So to the society, they are expendable. And about 2,000 years ago, there were two men hanging out on the side of the road who were part of these expendables, who were considered, who were part of the marginalized people in the eyes of the Jewish culture. These men, they were blind, and they had nothing that they could offer because of their blindness. In fact, they had to rely on the mercy and the compassion of the Jewish culture in order to live day to day. That is, at least until a man, a king, in fact, from a small town named Nazareth came passing by. And this is a story we are going to read about in Matthew uh, chapter 20, verses 29 through 34. And as we read and go through this passage, we will look at the actions of the blind men, the actions of the crowd, and the actions of the one called the Son of David, and see what we can learn from them today and how we can put that into 
practice. But before we begin, let's pray. Father, focus our minds and our affections unto you and to your truth this morning. Help our spirits to be humble and submissive to your teaching. May we hear what we need to hear. May your spirit, your Holy Spirit, guide us and disciple us and search our hearts and souls and convict us of the sins that are before us. We search this word, we hear this word this morning so that we may draw closer to you, know you more, be more transformed into the image of your Son, that we may ultimately glorify you in all that we do. And we ask all these things, Father, for your glory, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34. And this is, if you think about it, it's only six verses. And I know last time I preached, I think I did like a chapter and a half. So this might be a little adjustment for you. It's only six verses, not going too far today. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And that's, that's Jesus. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. When we read this passage, it's easy to view from a distance, not just the distance of time between us and when this, when this happened, but also just from the distance of the fact that they're blind and we're not. But we have to understand that in a way, they represent all of us. See, people who need Christ, but without the intervention of others or that of Christ, are helpless in getting that need. See, without Christ, you and I, we are just as destitute and needy as these two blind men were. There's nothing that they could do on their own to get to Christ. See, the blind, no matter what you tell them, they cannot gain their sight by opening their eyes. No matter how much they try, no matter how many times other people say to them, just open your eyes. Try harder. Why can't you see? Can't you see? It's obvious. Just try. You have eyes. Just open them. But this is why they need Christ. This is why we need Christ. We may not be blind, but just like these blind men, we were all born with a condition that we could do nothing about. We were all born into the slavery of sin, trapped within its power as it corrupted our souls and has fleshed itself out in our lives through various ways. We see this power of sin in the alcoholic who can't leave the bar or the liquor cabinet alone. Or the pornographer or the adulterer who cannot stay away from lustful temptations. Or the addict who can't stop poking himself with needles. Or the the attention seeker who can't stop performing for a false audience found online while the relationships around them crumble. Or the glutton who is satisfied physically is unable to stop eating as they medicate themselves with food. Or even the homosexual who desires after unnatural and ungodly affections. And even the sloth who can't help but be lazy and unproductive as they binge on social media and streaming services. The thing is, though, outside of Christ, all of us, we are powerless against sin. And it controls us. The blindness of these men 
defined them, it controlled them, it made them powerless in society. Do we understand that and do we remember that for those of us who once were this way? See, we might not be these people now, but every one of us, every one of us who calls on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we once were. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 11. He writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were, were, past tense, you were this, were some of you, but you're not anymore because you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We have to remember that. Back in 2009, I had corrective eye surgery, and, you know, by the grace of God, the military paid for it. I had 2,400 eye surgery. I go in, and 12 seconds later, I'm at 2010. It's a remarkable thing, and I quite often forget that I, too, like my wife, used to have to wear glasses, and I used to have to put contact lenses in and, and, and all that stuff, because ever since that day, I've been able to wake up, and I can look at the clock across the room and know what time it is. I, I can look, I can see a street sign down the street, you know, a long distance away without the aid of anything. Cause, and it's been so long that I often forget that I was dependent on glasses and contact lenses. So let us remember that moment in our lives where we realize the need for our Savior. We realize the depth of our sin and our depravity. Just like these blind men. They were constantly reminded. They knew the blindness. You can't hide that. They, they knew it was before them. And so when they heard about the man who could help them was passing by, that moment has come for them, a moment that changes everything, just like it did for you and I when we came to faith. They hear this crowd, and they hear that Jesus is in this crowd, and they begin crying out. They don't hesitate. They say, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, picture this in in your mind's eye. This crowd probably has Pharisees, the disciples, influential people. They're all fine to hear touching, trying to see him, trying to hear Jesus. Yet these men, who are considered expendable by society, who rely on the compassion and the mercy of the Jewish culture, these men who have nothing to lose, they call out to this man. They're not just calling out to Jesus, not simply by a name, but by a title, son of David. And this reflects their understanding of who he is, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, He is the one to deliver Israel from its enemies, the one to reestablish the throne of David forever. He is a king, but he's not just a king, he's the king. These men, they're calling out in desperation, just as we once did in our moment of salvation, and as we continue to do in our acts of repentance. But there is an obstacle here. And it's interesting here. See, these men, they're calling out to Jesus, recognizing, calling him out, son of David, recognizing who he is, but it doesn't stop them. They know they're blind. They know how society views them. And recognizing that Jesus is king, they don't hesitate to bother him because they understand what kind of a king he is. But there is an obstacle here in this story. There's an antagonist who who doesn't understand this. And they tried to prevent the blind men from getting the king's attention. Because after all, why would a king, especially this king, be bothered by such people? 
by these expendables, these who cannot contribute to society, and they're blind for whatever reason. Why would anyone of respect, anyone with any kind of dignity, allow such a person to be bothered? If the president came to our town, do you think the mayor or the city council would allow a homeless man to bother the president? Of course not, because that's not how society operates. So let's look at this crowd, at these who are trying to prevent these expendables from bothering Jesus, son of David. This crowd, they rebuke the blind men. They're calling out in their desperation, and they rebuke him. They tell him to be silent. And in Luke's account, Luke is a little bit more specific on who in the crowd is rebuking him. He says, those in front of the crowd. So these aren't those on the fringes who barely know Jesus, but those like on the front who, who are kind of leading the way so they know where Jesus is going, so they're probably on the end with Jesus. And it could potentially be some of the disciples, people who are of value worth, people who know Jesus, but yet they rebuke the blind men to be silent. Matthew's account, it is simply just the crowd, and we don't know exactly who it is. But this vagueness of who rebuked the blind men should give us a pause. This crowd doesn't understand the real purpose or the ministry or the true nature of the kingdom or the true nature of the king, even though Jesus, just a few verses earlier in, in the Gospel of Matthew in 20 through 26, teaches that the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. And yet, though he just taught this, the crowd doesn't get it. The disciples don't get it. Surely you think if the disciples got it and they heard the cries of these blind men, they would have been like, whoa, let's let the king serve. Let's do what he was meant to do. But we don't have that. They just tell the blind men to be silent, quiet, stop calling out to Jesus. These expectations of the crowd quite often exist not only in society, though, but in churches. Perhaps we could say that's not the church is outside of society, but society is inside the church, and that's why these expectations often exist within the church. So we must be careful that we are not this crowd, because we can be. We either explicitly tell others that they are not worthy of God's kingdom, or of being in our church, or being part of it based on what they can or cannot provide, or the burden that they bring in, or we do so implicitly, by ignoring them, treating them differently for a variety of reasons, by staying within our cliques, staying within our families. We have to remember that the outsider, the drunk, the addict, the gay, lesbians, transgender, those who are socially awkward, those who are unemployed, the one that's been divorced, the adulterer, the glutton, the slob, the one who's all about abortion and is for it and is pro-choice, the teenager that's pregnant, the couple that's unmarried and living together, All these people, they're all trapped in their sin, and they need the power and love of Christ. We cannot say to them simply, open your eyes and expect them to see. We cannot just look at them and say, try harder, do better. cannot tell a person to get their life right, that they have to do A, B, and C, and they'll be good. We have to remember how helplessly lost we once were and didn't know it until we knew it until the grace of God came into our lives. Whether it was God doing it on his own, divinely intervening into our lives, or it was by the blessing of a brother or sister in Christ who saw our need, who saw the compassion that we were desperately yearning for and reached out to us with the gospel. See, the church is meant for sinners. It's meant for broken people, for the rejects of society, 
the throwaways, the widows, the orphans, the lame, and the homeless. It's going to be a messy place. It ought to be a messy place. And this is what we can trust in and give praise for, that the glory and the beauty of a kingdom relies not on its citizens, but on its king. And the king of heaven, the king of all kings, he does the unexpected with his kingdom. He opens the gates to all who recognize him as king. And to recognize Jesus as king means that we give him the adoration that he is due. We praise him, we worship him, that he's deserved. And we submit to his authority and his word. To those he opens his gates to. Regardless of their sins. To the lame, the oppressed, the needy, the rich, the poor. Man and woman, black, white, yellow, red, or a mix of those colors. We, there is no black church or white church. When we do that, we are implicitly telling somebody, if you don't meet this adjective, you don't belong here. This is a white church, so black people can't come here. This is a black church, so white people can't come here. We cannot label all churches like that, and we mustn't. And if we do, we should repent and, and, and fix it. The doors are open to anyone who calls on the name of Jesus, who calls on the son of David. Again, we are not defined by our activity. That's not what gives us value. It's not about what you can bring to the table. God doesn't need you for anything. As much as you contribute to this church, as much as I contribute to this church, this church doesn't need me. It needs his word. It needs his grace, but it doesn't need me to do it. God doesn't need us. He freely chooses to use us for his glory as he sees fit for his kingdom. So again, I'll be harping on this all morning. Our value, our identity, and worth before God is not in our activity, or how useful we are. It's found solely in the work of Jesus Christ. And the work of Christ is finished. Now, because of that, let us not hide ourselves, and let us not hide others. We, all of us, everyone in here, we are called to be active, vibrant citizens of the kingdom of God, and to be part of his church, all of us, doing whatever we can do, physically and mentally, that God has blessed us to be able to do. As a church, we need to find ways to include those who are disabled, who have limitations, to be involved and not to push them to the corner and be like, this is where the disabled people go. No, the disabled people, if anything, this should be a place where they can feel involved, where they can feel that autonomy, they can feel loved and, and recognize that they are just like you and me, that they bear the image of God. Because again, our value and identity do not come from our activity or lack of it. So our brokenness, whether it's physical and spiritual, all of that is part of our testimony. We shouldn't come to church wearing a mask or pretending someone that we're not. That's exhausting. I know many of you know this. It's exhausting to pretend to be somebody that you're not. It's exhausting to fake it till you make it. And the Christian life, there is no faking it till you make it because you will just keep faking it all the way to hell. Don't do that. Accept Christ as your, as your identity and be free of that. Stop pretending that your life isn't messed up because it is. Because the depravity and, and, and the power of sin, all of our lives are messed up in different ways. So let's not cover up our scars. Okay, scars are nothing to be ashamed of. They remind us of our wounds, yes, and they can be painful, but they also remind us that healing has taken place. You don't have a scar 
if there hasn't been healing that has to happen. And that's the testimony of God's grace in our lives. So let's not hide it. But let me be clear. Do not think that I am saying what Kelly Clarkson says in her new song, Broken and Beautiful, where she sings, I'm broken, but I'm beautiful. Our brokenness in itself is not beautiful. It is not. It is a reminder of how broken and fallen creation has become. That what was considered good by God is no longer good. That should cause us to lament and mourn and to weep. It reminds us how depraved and full of sin we are before God. So when we look at our brokenness, we don't celebrate it. We don't say, yeah, I'm broken, but it's no, you're, it's ugly. It's ugly. Before a holy and righteous God, it's deserving of an eternal hell. But, but, God still glorifies himself in his mercy and his grace through that brokenness. That which is ugly before his eyes, he is willing to redeem us, to restore us from, to heal us from, causing us to be born again, to be new creations, to give us a new life and to walk in that new life. So in that, we don't hide the brokenness. Not again. Again, it's not because the brokenness is beautiful, but because the work of Christ in that brokenness is beautiful. So let's not hide that. When we try to hide that, we are trying to hide the glory of God and let us not do this. Remember, we were this way. We were caught in this sin. Whatever sin it was, we were this way, but God. We were broken this way, but God worked in that brokenness. And it's that mercy, that compassion, that glory that we celebrate. We're not too messed up and we're not too evil, believe it or not, to be redeemed by God. And the Bible is full of examples. King David, murder, adulterer, Paul who persecuted the church of, church of Christ, who split up families, put Christians in prisons, had them stoned. Peter, who denied Christ three times. So that should move us all to recognize that all of us, just like these blind men, we can cry out to Jesus. These blind men did not let the opinions of society, the rebukes of this crowd, or the reality of their own physical limitations prevent them from crying out a second time, Son of David, have mercy. And this act of faith leads us to the actions of Jesus, the Son of David. See, after the second cry, the men are brought to Jesus because Jesus says, bring them here. And they ask. He's like, what can I do for you? And they ask for their eyes to be opened. And, you know, the ESV says out of pity. And I'm not a big fan of how the word pity just because of how we tend to understand it. But it's out of compassion, out of the mercy of Jesus, he, he heals them. He opens their eyes. But he has done more than just give them physical sight. In Luke's account, it talks about how he has made them well, which is often associated with their faith has, has saved them. They have been saved. They have been brought into the kingdom. And we see this because the men respond as those who have been ushered into the kingdom by the mercy of the king. These men who once were blind, they don't return to the former communities or their homes. Rather, they follow Jesus and they follow their king. They are now a part of this community of Jesus followers, the kingdom of Christ. And in Luke's account, it talks about how this gives praise and glory. The crowds worship God at this time. And this is what testimonies ought to do. This is the celebration of the power of the gospel. 
they remind us of who God is and who we once were. Reminds us of the ministry that we're a part of. That the ministry is here to serve people, not to be served. Where those who are accepted know they are accepted because they are served by one another. When we come here, we should be asking God, how can I serve my brothers and sisters in Christ? Maybe it's where I sit, how I sit, who I sit with. Maybe it's opening the door, shutting the door. It could be, any, it could be such small things that we can do to serve one another. And by doing so, people, when that happens, when I get served, when you get served, you feel loved. You feel accepted. And it's also, at the same time, it's a ministry, it's a kingdom, where they themselves are allowed and are expected to serve as well. You come here, you don't get expected to be pushed in the corner. You're expected to be part of Hope Community Church. You're expected to be part of the work that God is doing through us here in West Salem. It's a privilege. It's a blessing. This passage reminds us of who we are and who we once were, dead and blind in our sins, deserving the full wrath of God. And when we remember who we were, where we have come from, it should be humbling for us, recognizing that all that God has done for us, our salvation, our sanctification, which is our process of becoming more Christ-like and more righteous, is not done because of our work or effort, but by the grace and love of Jesus Christ. These blind men saw not because they yearned for it hard enough, but because of the compassion of Jesus Christ. So when we are tempted by the bottle, or when we are tempted to lash out in anger at our loved ones, or we're tempted to indulge in sinful desires that we think we cannot escape, we ought to have the faith that these blind men had. We ought to be willing to get on our knees and cry out, have mercy, son of David, especially for those of us who call ourselves sons of the living king. If anyone, if these blind men can go to him, how much more, at the time they were outside of the kingdom and they were ushered in, how much more so can those who are citizens of the kingdom go before Jesus in their need of desperation and cry out, have mercy. He wants us to do this because he wants us to praise him and to follow him and live according to his ways. Now again, notice, remember, these men, they didn't stay by the side of the road. Nor did they say thanks to Jesus and just walked off and went about their business. As I think many people treat the gospel. They, they come to Christ, they say some made-up prayer, and they're like, I'm good, I'm saved, and they walk away, and that's not the proper response to somebody who's saved or who has experienced Christ. These blind men, they follow Jesus. Likewise, we must not think that we can willfully continue on in our sins after coming to know Christ, after experiencing the gospel. Just as there is no white or black church, there is no name your sin Christian, right? Example, and this is, this is a common one, it seems to be, in the evangelical community, and I use the word evangelical loosely and generically, but within the community, there's this idea of a gay Christian. There is no gay Christian. You cannot claim to know the gospel and be a believer while you willfully allow yourself to be enslaved to sin. It's not just about whether we practice it or not. Jesus makes this clear on the Sermon on the Mount, right? Me being a, a straight guy, right? If, if as married to my wife, if I look at another woman and in my head I lust after that woman, I have sinned. 
whether I act on it or not. I am in sin. I start sinning the moment it enters into my mind. Jesus is clear on that. So whether you're gay or whether or you're not, if you lust after anyone who is not your spouse, man or woman, it's got to be the opposite sex, it is a sin. So even for the single person who lusts after a single woman, that in itself, it's not your spouse, that's a sin. Because it starts the moment and answers. So you cannot be a gay Christian. You cannot be a gossiper Christian. You cannot be an alcoholic Christian. You can't not have that as part of your identity. Now listen, the issue here is not that we never sin, okay? Because we do. That's clear. That's obvious, right? We will. And if anyone says you're, you're not a sinner anymore, is a liar. First John is clear on this. Read First John. In fact, I would commend you to at least read First John 1 and 2 today, and he'll make it clear to you. That, that's a lie, anyone who claims to not, because there are teachers out there who say, no, you're in Christ, you're not a sinner. No, you, you still are. That's why you need Christ. That's why we repent constantly. So don't let anyone lead you astray that thinking that once you're in Christ, that once, was, that once was considered a sin is no longer a sin. That's not true. It still is a sin. It grieves the Spirit, and it begs for discipline by the Father if it goes unconfessed. Therefore, when we do sin, and John talks about this, we have an advocate that we can go to. We have a king that we can go to. We can go to the son of David, who right now is sitting at the right hand of the father, who intercedes for us. So we can confess our sins, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us for those sins, cleansing us as well from all unrighteousness. Now, again, the issue isn't on if we will sin, because as long as we are in these broken bodies, And as long as we are in these fallen bodies and in this sinful world, the struggle will always be there. It will be. It's just part of life until Christ returns in the fullness of his glory. But we fight it. We we persevere in that struggle. We get better as we are sanctified. We denounce it. We mortify our sins. And we definitely do not embrace it as part of our identity. We don't do that. 2 Corinthians 5.17, we're a new creation. We have been crucified with Christ, right? This is, that's Galatians 2.20. Crucified with Christ. We no longer live. Part of denying ourselves is denying our identity. Yes, you might struggle with this particular sin, but it's not who you are. Again, going back to that verse I quoted earlier from Paul. You once were this. You once were sexually immoral, but not anymore because you've been sanctified. You might struggle with it, but you need to be putting it to death. You need to be repenting. You need to be confessing. You need to be seeking accountability. You need to be bringing it before the congregation. You need to be walking in the light of the Holy Spirit. So with all that being said, let us be encouraged as we go down the narrow road that Jesus calls us to go down, denying ourselves, our whole selves, our identities, whoever society thinks we are, our worth, our value, denying all of that to follow Jesus Christ, who has shown us mercy, compassion, grace, who has given us new hearts and eternal life by his blood, by his own life. As we follow him and identify with him in his suffering as he goes to Calvary as we carry our crosses and identify ourselves with him and all that he represents. And as we do that, we emulate the compassion that he shows to us. Think about it. Here he is. He's where we are in Matthew. He's on the way to Calvary. We're about to enter into the final week of Jesus' life. 
he's got a lot on his mind because he's about to go, he's about to have his passion experience. The whole th- reason he came, he's about to, it's all about to come to a head. And here he's got these two blind men. There's many people, many people that he's healed. And he's got these two blind men crying out in desperation. And I would think that yeah, if it was me, I probably would have been like, I'm busy. I got a lot on my mind. I, you know, sorry, I've, I've been healing other people. I got, I got a cross to bear. But he doesn't do that. He shows them grace and compassion. And, and when we do this, when we walk in, in this world and according to the ways of Christ, it can be heavy. And if we're not careful, we might lose sight of that compassion and grace towards others. Because we get worn down, we get beaten. But let us not do that. Let us show this compassion and grace to others, recognizing that he desires mercy, not sacrifice. Let's chase after that. Let's get on our knees and ask him to give us that heart, not thinking that anyone is outside the grace of God. And always, always remembering the mercy. This is why the gospel is so important. This is why here, I hope, whatever we do, it's always about the gospel. You can come in here feeling beat down, worn out, but the gospel should always lift you up because the gospel, one, reminds you that whatever happens here, ultimately, in eternity, doesn't matter because Christ has done all that matters for you for eternity. That This is just a vapor. Leave it all on him. Trust in him. Rest in him and, and, and find the joy that exists that it's purely by his grace. It has nothing to do with what you have done, or haven't done, or what others have done. It's purely by his grace. That's the good news, and this impacts you for eternity. Long after Hope Community Church is gone, long after your business is gone, your schoolmates are gone, long after all of that, what matters is what Christ has done on the cross. So when we are reminded of the gospel, it should should fill our cups up with joy and mercy and compassion for others. When we do this, we can treat the blind men, those who society think are expendable as they ought to be treated. Not because of the lack of value or their ability to contribute to society. Because we will always remember that we too were dead in our sins, we were hostile in our minds, and we were unable to do anything of any worth for our Lord. Yet, while we were still enemies, he loved us, right? He died for us. Likewise, let us do the same for others, And let us do the same for one another. Let us especially do it for our spouses and our kids, and which is probably the hardest part, right, is to live that way for your spouse. I always go back to the dishwasher or how the dishes go back in the cabinets. Don't let those little petty things allow bitterness to come in. Die to self. Remember what Christ has done for you. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your your mercy, your great mercy that you have lavished upon us. Thank you for opening our eyes to see your truth. I ask that you search our hearts and souls this morning, that you know our pains, that you know our needs, that you lift us up. Uh, There's some of us here who have probably had a long week, long, hard week, and just It's easy to get caught up in the busyness of life. It's easy to get caught up in the busyness of family. Just doing what what is good in your eyes, we we sometimes lose sight of you. We just ask you, just bring us back to the gospel. Help us look to the testimony of these blind men who had such great faith, who, who despite their infirmity were able to call upon the name of your son 
and did so despite the crowds rebuking them, reminding them how society viewed them. Let us not be deceived by anyone or or by Satan or or by anyone to think that our sins have made us unworthy to come before you. We are deserving of that wrath, Father, but you have made a way by your Son, by his blood, for us to come into your presence, into the throne room, and to take these sins and lay them at your feet and ask for mercy. Help us recognize the depth of that sin, the the greatness of that divide that you have crossed over, that you have reconciled, that just the work that your Son has done for us, Father. And help us celebrate that good news. Help us see your holiness and how truly holy you are and how nobody here, no one ever can bring anything to your table that is of benefit to you. Even our praise apart from you is filthy, Father. But yet it brings you joy and we don't always understand it. You desire to have us to walk with you, to give you praise, And you have grace that abounds all the more despite our sins. You never shut your door on us as long as we continue to confess our sins before you, Father. Help us do that. And help us do that not just as individuals at home, but as a family, as one body, one church here. Help us here at Hope to be able to love one another, to walk with one another in our sins, guiding each other through the acts of repentance so that we can be sanctified by the Holy Spirit through the body of Christ in your word, being washed by your word, so that people can look at the testimonies that exist within this church. You can be praised and glorified. The darkness in West Salem can flee in the presence of that light, and that people can come to know you, and you can use us to build your kingdom. And help us do this, Father, in our workplaces, in our homes, and as schools start up. Help the teachers who know you be good, positive influences and witnesses of your power to the students and to the parents. Father, we need you in all hours of this day. Help us trust in that. Help us rest in that truth. May we put it into practice. And we ask all these things, Father, for your glory, by the power of the Holy Spirit, whom you have sent to dwell within us, because of the blood shed by your Son, and it's in his name, your Son, Jesus Christ, that we ask all these things. Amen.